So we're continuing in our series in Colossians, and uh, Paul has the Apostle Paul has a heart for this church, uh, Christians that are in the city of Colossae. That's why it's called Colossians. That's uh, the city of Colossae. And uh, he didn't plant this church. He's never visited this church. Uh, it was uh, planted probably by the man that he mentions in this letter a couple of times, Epaphras, who gave them the gospel, gave them the good news, gave them the truth of who Jesus Christ was. And Paul is now writing from prison, writing this letter to this church uh, that's going to accompany Epaphras and some others as they return to the city, and he wants to share his heart with them. Uh, they, of course, know who Paul is, and uh, Paul's missionary journeys kind of went all the way around the city, north and south, but he didn't stop there. And so he wants to share with them uh, his heart. And we looked at the true gospel that he outlined in chapter 1 and uh, his heart that they would understand the truth. And the reason specifically that he wants to outline the true gospel is that the theme of this letter is that his concern that they are being deceived or that they're wandering from the true gospel that they were presented with or that they're uh, getting caught up in um, uh, religiosity and philosophies and things that are distracting them away from the truth. And so Paul's heart is for that in the church in Colossians. And he has in mind in this text the idea that there's two kinds of people. And you've heard that before in the world, that there's two kinds of people. Like if you're a French fry person... You either put the ketchup on the French fries or you put it beside, right? There's two kinds of people in the world, those who dip and those who smother in ketchup, right? Or, you know, there's two kinds of people in the world, those who put the toilet paper on the proper way and those who do it wrong. Um, you know, there's, there's two kinds of people in the world. Uh, there's uh, morning people and there's people who want to shoot morning people. Um, and then I had to throw this one in for all my nerd friends. There's uh, two kinds of people in the world, those that know binary and those that don't. Um, once you learn binary, you'll get it. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's different kinds of people in the world, and Paul has in mind here that there are two kinds of people, and, and as he's describing the type of people, the one is he's putting forth is kind of assume, is, is clear, and then the other person is the one who's not like that person. And so you could imagine two people on a spectrum, or two people on a scale. And on the one hand, uh, there's a type of person, and on the other hand, there's another type of person. And in Colossians uh, chapter 2, which is where we're going to be, 1 to 5, he starts to describe these people. But the first person on the scale uh, is sort of, they have a faith community of believers that is full of love, and they're bound to this community in love. And they've been diligent in their spiritual walk. They're, they're learning from God, and they're learning from Scripture, and they're being transformed from a person who used to be far from God, who knew very little of God. They're being transformed into someone who knows God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit very well. He, this person knows them, and they know the value of God and their glory and their goodness and their wisdom and knows the Word of God. And that person, to the degree that they identify in that way, has two things. They have full assurance of their salvation, and they have protection against deception. And those two things sort of being two sides of the same coin. They're fully assured of their salvation. They're assured of their justification, their salvation, their sanctification, and their future glorification. Because they have understanding and they have knowledge of Jesus who grants them wisdom and knowledge. And they know, they don't feel, they don't hope, 
They don't guess, they don't presume, they don't sense, they don't speculate. They have knowledge, they know, and they have assurance of their faith. And they can't be deluded or deceived because if someone comes along to that type of person, that first kind of person, and tries to tell them something different from what the Scripture says because they know it so well, or if they try to tell them something different about the character or nature of God, they spot it immediately. And they recognize that it's a deception or that it's a delusion. They see that the deceiver is not part of the community of love that they have with other believers. And they see that the things that they are speaking aren't truth. You know, or if they read a book that contradicts the word of God, this person sees it immediately. They know and understand that, that, that it's not the word of God. They see right away that if a writer or a preacher is twisting the word of God. And then there's a second kind of person on the other end of the scale. And this second kind of person maybe grows up in the church with Christian parents or they maybe have a religious experience years and years ago at a camp or some special event that they went to, but they've never connected to the church. They are not bound in any sort of community of love. And they may pray sometimes when life is hard or when a friend or family member is sick, but they have no community with the Christian love that they belong to. There's no, there's no church family. They don't come to church, or maybe they do, but they don't really have close relationships. Church is not their priority. It's not, you know, their church friends are not their best friends. And as a result, they don't attend a small group, and they don't have a mentor to help them learn, and they don't have Christian friends that regularly care for them or are invested in their lives. And so they're, they're kind of adrift in their faith. And they don't read their Bible really at all, or certainly not much, right? This kind of person, they know that there's some good stories. They know that there's some pearls of wisdom in the scripture, but they're not really, haven't really studied even one gospel or one letter fully to really, really know what it teaches and what's in there. If you ask them what their salvation was, they could probably tell you. But if you start to talk about justification or sanctification or glorification, you start to lose them because they don't even know what those terms mean. They don't really know what happened to them when they were saved if they were saved. They don't know what took place. And so that type of person doesn't have an assurance necessarily that they're saved. They have a general sense that God loves them and they hope that they'll make it into heaven because they were told that God is nice and forgiving, kind of like a, you know, a soft-hearted old grandfather. Or they compare their lives to maybe some really bad people that they know and they think, well, I'm better than them, so I'll make it. But they're not sure. They don't have assurance of their salvation and of their faith. And this type of person is easily deceived. Every time they read a book on a spiritual matter, they're convinced this is the new thing for their life, right? They, you know, they read about this prayer or that prayer or this technique or that technique, and they're convinced that's the new thing, right? Or if they meet someone with a convincing argument for maybe reincarnation or praying to angels for special blessing, uh, you know, they, this type of person just might believe that because they don't know what's in Scripture, and they're not certain, and they haven't, don't have the wisdom of Jesus Christ in their life to know what they should know. You know, or they bump into a, a syncretic, which is sort of all religions are the same, or they bump into an agnostic, or they bump into an atheist with clever-sounding arguments, and their faith kind of withers away after one debate because they really don't stand on anything firmly. And those are the two types of people that there are sort of in Paul's world that he's talking about here in Colossians. There's two kinds of people in the world, and, and somewhere on the scale we fall into one of those two categories, all of us here today are one of, or approaching, one of those two types of people. And so we're all there somewhere. And as I describe them, you can probably figure out for yourself, even as I just described them there in the last couple minutes, where you think you fall and what type of person you are in the world and in your faith. 
And Paul has in mind this when he writes this letter to the Colossians. He desires that they be like the first person. Paul wants these Christian friends of his in in the city of Colossae, he wants us as Christians to be like the first person, but he's very concerned that there are far too many like the second kind of person in the world that just aren't sure, that are uncertain, that are not assured and not wise and not knowledgeable. They have no assurance. They're uncertain and they're easily deceived. And so he writes in Colossians 2, 1 to 5, he starts out writing this way, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, a city that's nearby, and for all those who have not seen me face to face. These are people he hasn't met. His great struggle for them, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom we are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul is really clear here. This is what he's writing about. I don't want you to be deluded, to be deceived by people with plausible arguments. Right? So he's saying, what kind of person should you be? You should be those people that are knit together in love. You need to be in church. You need to be in Christian community. You need to have fellow believers around you. And you need to be a community that's knit together in love, that you're bound by love. Because if you're in that kind of a community, it's harder to be deceived. Right? As we're bound together in love, as we have a community here where we have strong Christians who are leading other Christians in their walk, then it's hard for these deceptions to get into the church. But if you're in a place where um, you know, you're not connected to church or you don't have a small group or you don't really have any Christian friends, it's easy to be deluded. It's easy to be picked off by these books and these preachers and these speakers and you know, Oprah or you know, whatever. You know, they'll have really neat sounding things on television or you'll read a really cool sounding book and it's easy if you're not knit together in a community and love to get picked off and get deceived and get deluded by false teaching. And so Paul says, first of all, be knit together. And then he says, you need to be the type of people that have full assurance of the knowledge of God's mystery, that you're full of wisdom from Jesus Christ and you're using that wisdom to have knowledge of the scripture and what is true. And there's two ways that Paul says we can deceive. He has two particular concerns. The first way that we can be deceived is by empty philosophy. He says, see to it, in 2.8, Colossians 2.8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And so Paul's concerned because this Roman city, this Greek city of Colossae, Uh, you know anything about Rome, you know anything about Roman culture, they loved philosophy, right? And philosophy literally means just the love of wisdom, and that's not evil in itself, but the love of wisdom becomes evil when we seek wisdom apart from God, when we seek knowledge apart from God, when we try to establish ourselves with a kind of knowledge that ignores the knowledge of God. In other words, we replace God. You know, and I'm sure you have... Uh, in Paul's day, you've heard of the Roman world was full of philosophies. They, they worship the idea of philosophy. You know, you've heard of names like Socrates and Plato, you know, sort of household names even today, who were, who were philosophers, you know, or the fields of thought that the Romans investigated into, like the, you've maybe heard of the Cynics or the Epicureans or the Sophists or the Pythagoreans, or maybe you haven't, maybe it's just nerds like me. Um, but... You know, these are philosophies that came out of the ancient Greek world and they still have an impact today. 
You still study them in university, if you go to university today. And in high school, philosophy was the religion, essentially, of Rome and Greece. And philosophies try to explain the world without God, and they ultimately fall short. Right? This isn't a philosophy class, so I'm not going to go in through all the various kinds of ways that they fall short and can appear wise and provide glimpses of truth. But, but ultimately, these philosophies that Paul's concerned about is that without God, ultimately they fall short. Whether it's atheism or secular humanism or postmodernism, all these modes of thought that we've come up with throughout history and even recently, they fall short because they're empty of God and they let us down in the end. But they can appear wise. Plato, for instance, after years of his study with Socrates and, and, and years of deep philosophical observation, just as one example, Plato came up with this realization that there must be something called archetypes. Does anybody remember their philosophy 101, Plato's archetypes? Right? Plato, Plato dis- realized that there must be archetypes of all true moral and ethical and noble things. In other words, there's an archetype of true beauty. There's an archetype of true courage, right? the most beautiful, perfect beauty of which all other beauty is a derivative of. But there must be a perfect beauty out there somewhere that all beauty is a derivative of to the point where if it lacks all beauty, it becomes ugliness. Or the courage. There's an archetype of courage, of absolute fearless courage, perfect courage, of which all instances of courage that we see are just shadows of that perfect courage, all the way down to where there's no courage at all and we just have fear and cowardice. Well, Plato was on the right track. There is a perfect beauty. There is a perfect courage. There is a perfect goodness. There is a perfect ethic. It's God. It's not just an archetype. It's God is the perfect of all those things that we are the shadow of. And so Plato was on the right track, but it ends up empty in the end because what is the archetype if it's not God? It ends up empty in the end. Or you can go to the East. You can go to Buddha. Buddha observed that the nature of mankind, and and he he studied it and, and dwelt on it and and meditated upon the nature of mankind, and he discovered that all the violence and sadness of mankind stems from desire. Because we desire, we envy, and we fight, and we hate, and so the answer of Buddhism is to suppress all desire. If we had no desire, then there would be no violence, and there would be no hate, and there would be no discord. Well, he's on the right track, right? Our sinful nature is based in our desire. It is desire that causes us to sin. He's not wrong, but the answer leaves us empty. His answer is just desire nothing. Have nothing in your life. Have no desire. And it falls short of what God says. It says, your desires are wrong. They are sinful. They are the cause of your violence and your hate and your discard. But it's not because your desires are too weak, but because they're not strong enough. Because you desire the wrong thing. You're satisfied with sex and money and you know going to the movies and having a vacation and you think you're satisfied with that when in fact I offer you eternal life. I offer you the God of the universe to have relationship with you. If you desired the right thing, you would have so much more. So God doesn't say empty your life of desire. He says fill your life with desire. Desire what fulfills you. Desire me. And so these philosophies end up empty in the end. And this is what Paul is concerned about, is that they would chase neat-sounding arguments that end up empty. Even Christianity can become an empty philosophy. And this hits closer to home. The deception that is out there, that just going to church and cleaning up a few bad habits, making sure that we don't swear, we don't smoke, and we don't go with girls who do, and all that stuff. And just being good at appearing good is Christianity. That's an empty philosophy. The Christianity is just being good at looking good. And that we just have to clean up some habits. And that's all that's required of it. And that it's not important in Christianity to make God your treasure. 
or to put Jesus at the center of your life and let the weight of His glory bring everything in your life into orbit around it. That He is the sun that all the planets in your solar system orbit around. The deception that Christianity is somehow just a cultural niceness and it's not a life-defining reality. That's an empty philosophy that's very dangerous in the world today in North America. That somehow just being nice is good enough for Christianity. And that it can just be simply added to the side of whatever else you're doing in your life. You can just sort of tack Christianity on the side and you'll be okay. That's a deception. Paul doesn't want us to be deceived by that either. No, Paul would say Jesus is the authority. He's the head. He's the source. He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent. He's the center because of what He's done for us on the cross. And nothing else can come before Him in the universe. And therefore, nothing else can come ahead of Him in our life. And everything else that other than that is a deception and it's empty. Even the law of God itself was only a shadow of, the, of Jesus to come. The light of Jesus chases away all shadows and it reveals all deception. And, and so that's what Paul wants to guard against. He says, you need to know Jesus so you're guarded against this deception. And the second thing that he's worried about is false religiosity. In, Col- in Colossians 2, 16-23, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on your, you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments and grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle and do not taste and do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting a self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What is the second thing that Paul is concerned about for these Christians in Colossians? He says, you're, you're getting caught up just like those Galatians over in Galatia by the Judaizers. There are people coming along saying Christ is okay, but you still have to be circumcised. You still have to follow the feast. You still have to be concerned about the Jewish law. Right? And that situation is very similar in Colossae as it was in Galatia. Right? Then the people started to cast doubt on the gospel that they were taught, and they tried to convince these new Christians that they had to add on to Jesus other things. And so if you were a Greek, you needed to be circumcised and start recognizing the Sabbath and visit the temple and perform the feast. Or if you were a Jew, you could accept Jesus and that would be fine, but you couldn't give up the old law. And we called them Judaizers because they tried to drag Christians back into the old law of Judah. And in essence, they were saying Jesus was not enough. And that seems like maybe it's not as common today, but in fact, there's people still hanging on to the idea that if you don't worship on Saturday, you're doing it wrong, right? That the Sabbath is Saturday, and we should be worshiping on the Sabbath, and everybody who's worshiping on any day other than Saturday is worshiping wrong. That's still going on today. That there are people that are clinging to a religiosity, an idea that we somehow uh, need to follow a set of rules in order to be saved, in order to be sure of our salvation, The Catholic Church today still insists that the priesthood and confessions and membership and sacraments of the church are required to receive the justification of God, that they're not, that they are necessary instruments of God's grace. And so this is still going on. Paul was concerned about it then, but we can be concerned about it today. 
But you can update this even closer to home. This kind of thinking can crop up even in evangelical denominations, right? Ideas start to develop like, you know, we can't use drums or guitars, you know, only pianos and organs, or, or perhaps we can't use instruments at all. Right now, I can tell you right now today, there is a Baptist denomination called the Acapella Baptists. They don't allow any instruments. They only sing psalms and they only sing them acapella. That's why they're called the Acapella Baptists, because instruments are not allowed. And so these types of things can creep into our religion, And it's not the gospel. It's not what Paul taught. It's not what Jesus died for, that we would sing a cappella and not have drums on stage. But these things can creep in. Or because some people maybe have struggled, maybe at a more personal level, because some people have struggled in some particular kind of sin, we make rules like Christians should never dance, or Christians should never go on a date, or Christians should never have a beer. I mean, I've seen a fair number of Christians dance, and honestly, some of them should not dance, okay? (laughs) But that's my preference. I can't make my preference a law of the faith, okay? And dating is something that we have to approach with caution. We have to approach dating with eyes wide open, because Christian dating, it can be so dangerous. Right? We have to have our eyes wide open with our sons and daughters in relation to dating. But we can't just make an arbitrary rule about, you know, Christians can't date. It doesn't work that way. You know, and beer, well, that's not going to fly in Halliburton, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> right? We all need boundaries. We all need boundaries. But my boundaries are not necessarily your boundaries. And we can't cloak our preferences in the disguise of God's law or make them biblical commands. If we do that, we risk abusing our brothers and sisters and abusing the gospel. And we slip dangerously close to deceiving other believers into thinking there's a bunch of rules they have to follow in order for them to be sure they're saved. And that they've got to run back to God and ask for forgiveness because, you know, they accidentally danced or something. So we got to be careful. we got to be careful. And that's what Paul's concerned about. Paul's distinction here is human precepts and teaching. And that's a clear echo of what Jesus taught. You look in Mark 7, verses 5 to 8. Jesus says, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus a question, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? They didn't wash their hands properly. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. This is what Paul does not want to see happen with his Christian friends in Colossae. He doesn't want them to get caught up in rituals and Sabbaths and new moons and feasts and festivals and sacrificing at the temple and all that stuff because those things were a shadow of what was to come. And really, the people who practice those things, quite often, he says, it's of no value in the end. It appears to be wise in severity of the body and asceticism, but it has no wisdom. It's possible for you to do all those things and your heart be far from God. The Pharisees were the best rule keepers on the planet. And Jesus said, your father isn't Abraham, your father is the devil. But they could keep all the rules. And so Paul does not want that. He wants these people in Colossians, he wants us to be free in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Christ died so that we would be set free from all these elementary principles of the world and set free from all the traditions of men. So do not be deceived. So how do we know what that freedom is? And Paul's already told us in verse 2 and 3. The freedom that we have in the grace of God. 
is that we have full assurance that the grace of God has set us free, that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is all that was necessary, and there's nothing we can add to it. And when we possess the wisdom and the knowledge of Christ, and when we are knit together in a community of love, we'll know what the freedom is, free from those empty philosophies and free from rule-keeping and and misguided religiosity and how to let others live in it as we also live in it ourselves. Where these disputes of practice arise and create factions in the church is where the Bible is not well known and the people are not knit together in love. If we're knit together in love and we're studying our scripture and we are enthralled by the love of Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross for us, then all these disputes and all these deceptions and all these delusions will not have a hold on us. That's the message of Paul to Corinth, and it's the message to us. If you want assurance, if you want to be wise, if you want to be guarded against deceptive, then the answer is simple. It's here what Paul said, be knit together in a community of love. Be in the church. Be in small groups. Be in community. Make church friends your best friends. That'll help against deception. And be in your Bible. Read your Bible every day. Love your Bible. Know your Bible inside and out. And no empty philosophy will shake your faith or mislead you. You will hear some crazy tale or some scientist or atheist or whatever will come up with some story and you will have the Scripture and you will have your knowledge of the Scripture that tells you that you cannot be misled or deceived or deluded by that. So be knit together in the church in love and be in Scripture and gain the wisdom of God so that you're not susceptible to deception. And don't be a deceiver, even unintentionally. When you hear something or you read something that sounds novel or it sounds new, something that you've not heard before, there might be a good reason that you've never heard it before because it's not true and it's the first time anybody's ever said it and you shouldn't be listening to it because it's wrong. So always check what you know with Scripture and you need to know your Scripture to know what it says to check what you hear and check the things that you hear and read with Christian friends who you know are well-grounded in the Bible. Because what you don't want to do is run around promoting a book or promoting a video or promoting an idea because it sounds clever or new or just feels better to you than how you thought before. When you do that, you may be unintentionally drawing people into deception. And so Paul warns here not to be deceived or be a deceiver. And Paul also warns here not to get caught up in enforcing religiosity. Especially be wary of enforcing patterns of worship or behavior that simply agree with your preferences. Jesus set us free from the law except for the law of love. The religious traditions we develop may have an appearance of wisdom for a time, but rituals ultimately fail in stopping us from sin. It's only our knowledge of the gospel and our love of Jesus Christ that preserves us. So one thing sets us free from our sin, and it's the work that Jesus did on the cross. Ephesians 2, 13 and 16 says this. And you can maybe take this and meditate on it as we go into our time of communion. Ephesians 2, 13 to 16 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. That's the one thing Paul wanted the people of Colossae to know. It's the one thing Paul wants us to know. He says, I preach Christ crucified and Christ alone. That's all that Paul wants us to know. 
is the gospel of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And he does not want us to be deceived. And he does not want us caught up in empty religiosity and laws and rule-keeping. He wants us knit together in love as a body of believers that are protecting each other from deception and from delusion. And he wants us to be in the Scripture. He wants us to have the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and, or the wisdom of Jesus Christ, and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and the knowledge that comes through knowing his Word and knowing his Scripture. So there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the ones that are in, their, in the Scripture and in a community of love and are built up and understand the gospel and are fully assured of their faith and they know the word of God and they cannot be deceived. And there are those that have some sort of experience and maybe God's there that they put on the side of their life and they don't really know scripture and every new thing that comes along confuses them. And Paul says, there's two kinds of people in the world. This is the one I want you to be. I want you to be the one that cannot be easily deceived. And that comes from a community of love, the wisdom of Jesus, and knowledge of the scripture, knowledge of God so you cannot be shaken. That's the people he wants us to be. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the, your word this morning. We can all assess our own lives right now of where we stand, whether we're the ones that are blown easily from side to side, easily deceived, confused by philosophies, atheists make us nervous, whatever, or we're the ones that are in our scripture, know your word, are fully assured of your salvation, know exactly what happened on the cross, Jesus Christ, and what happened in our life when we accepted him. Know your nature and your character without a doubt, how unshakable you are and how faithful you are. And there isn't a philosophy in the world that could delude us or deceive us because your Holy Spirit is in us and seals us and we're kept in our salvation for our glorification by you. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would continually strive to be the people who are not easily deceived, that are knit together in love, that are surrounded by people who guard and protect us, who mentor us, who teach us, who lead us. And we're in your word, filling our minds with the knowledge of all that is good and true so that none of the empty philosophies of this world or even the traditions of the church could deceive us. Make us that kind of people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.